Go to Philippians chapter number one this morning. Philippians is right after the book of Ephesians. Of course, this is a book written by Paul the Apostle to a church that's at a a city called Philippi. So it would be as if someone wrote a letter to the Pittsburghers. And so they call it Philippians. We call it Philippians because it's written to this church here established at Philippi. And I have been, we've been talking about this series coming up here for, I guess, a few weeks now, and I've been studying for it for a few months now, and am excited just to kind of dive in and see a bit about this book of the Bible, and I think that it's particularly fitting for our church right now. We're calling this series Together for the Gospel, because if there was ever a church that really exhibited togetherness, I know that's not a word, but togetherness with Paul in gospel ministry, and they just fellowshiped with him in this way, it really is the book of Philippians. So you'll, you'll find as we read these first eight verses that Paul just kind of gushes with love and affection and praise for these people, I mean, just right out of the gate. And it's extremely warm, this letter is. It's extremely heartfelt. This is, it's a unique letter for us, really, because Paul is not seeking to correct something in this church. He has these, these minor kind of just one-offs where he's like, hey, these two ladies, you're not getting along, get along, and stuff like that inside the letter. But the, the bulk of the letter is not like the rest of his letters. He would write to uh, the Corinthians or to the Colossians, and he's trying to address a problem. He's trying to say, hey, you're, go, you're off the rails here, fix this. You, there's some heresy creeping into your church, you need to adjust this. But Philippians, there's none of that. At its core, it's a thank you letter. This church has just sent Paul, Paul's in prison, awaiting kind of an audience with Emperor Nero, and history tells us that he's actually going to be executed when this happens. And Paul is here in prison, and this church has just sent him kind of a care package of sorts, some money and some gifts to be a blessing to him while he is in prison. So he's responding back to them saying, I love you guys so much, and thank you for fellowshipping with me in this way. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for giving to me. And you'll see, you'll see this uh, just kind of mode of love in the first eight verses. So let's pick it up in verse number one. The first couple of verses are very standard introduction for Paul, really. Paul and Timotheus, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet or as it is right or as it's fitting, as it's fitting for me to thank this of you all because I have you in my heart. And as much as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. I'll stop there for a moment. What Paul is saying is that from beginning to end, you fellowshiped in the gospel with me. In my bonds or in defending the gospel, you're with me. So this is a, this is a neat moment for Paul because many churches were on Team Paul when Paul was planting churches, when Paul was spreading the gospel, when he was traveling freely. But as Paul is thrown into prison and now is shipped off to Rome, some of the churches have begun to distance themselves and put Paul at arm's length and say, you know what, I'm not sure if we should be like so closely associated with you, Paul, at this point. Many have begun to kind of cut their support or their funding of Paul. But Paul says, you guys know my bonds or in defense and confirmation, fellowship from the first to the last, I mean, from beginning to end, 
you just have been friends, and I'm grateful for this. We'll read verse 8 and leave it here. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ or in affections in, in Jesus Christ. And Paul gives this church all throughout this book a lot of coffee cup verses, you know, verses that we slap on a coffee cup and we just, we cherish, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. But the book is so much more than that and so much grander than that. And it exhibits for us what it means in a good look at Christian maturity, a good look at a church that said, let's band together, let's be together for the gospel's sake, and let's all just be on the same team and be pushing together forward for the gospel. And this morning, I want us just to see the gospel-centered beginnings of this church. And to do that, we need to go to Acts 16. So I'm not going to read that yet, but we went a little bit so you can get there. But Acts 16 will tell us the story of how this church began. And we'll get to see windows into actual people who are at Philippi, who Paul is writing to, expressing his praise to, expressing his gratitude to. And we'll get to see how this church was formed in the first place. And I think in so doing, it will help us understand not just these eight verses, but the book as a whole. Understand Paul, the guy who wrote Philippians, is someone who was as anti-Jesus as you could possibly get at one point in time in his life. I know that some of you would work with or you would have family, you would have people that you associate with who just have some sort of aversion to Christianity, but they don't hold a candle to Paul. If, if Paul knew you were a Christian, he would attempt to murder you. And not like tongue-in-cheek, but literally put you in jail, murder you. And this man hated Jesus, hated Christianity, and through a series of events on the Damascus Road comes to a point where he finds out that what the Christians are proclaiming, that Jesus died for sins and rose from the dead, is legitimately true. And this man, his whole life is changed, and he becomes not, not an accuser of Christians and a persecutor of Christians, but he becomes a, a proclaimer of Christianity in Jesus. And this man who is a brilliant intellect, who's a cultured man, a traveled man, a man who's extremely self-willed. You, you read the testimony of Paul and you find that he had this incredible ability to twist his own arm behind his own back and to make himself abide by a moral code. This man who's, who's self-willed and uses all that against Jesus, turns a corner and decides, I'm going to use this for Jesus. And Paul is through a few years. He's discipled. He grows. He begins to teach and preach. He ends up in Antioch, and he meets up with this guy named Barnabas. And they, for two years, are sent out by this church, and they start to take the gospel, not just to Jewish people, which the gospel had just been circulating amongst Jewish circles, but they begin to take it away from Judaism into Gentiles, which is a really, really watershed moment in the story of the gospel and in Acts. And he and Barnabas for two years travel around and they establish churches in these cities. They come back to Jerusalem, have this big powwow that I won't get into. And Paul and Barnabas get in a fight. Barnabas falls away and Paul picks up this new guy, Silas, who's this leader at the church in Jerusalem. And Paul and Silas decide that they're going to travel back to the churches where they've already been the churches that are already established, and they are going to confirm these churches. They're going to uh, encourage them. They're going to enlighten them on some things that they've discovered about Jesus and the gospel. The, the churches are enlarged, and that's where you end chapter 15. The very end of chapter 15 is Paul and his buddy Silas deciding we're going to go travel to these churches that are already established in Asia Minor, kind of modern-day Turkey, 
and we are going to confirm these churches. And as they do this, they eventually, they, they travel along, and they eventually get to Lystra and Derby, and they meet this guy named Timothy. And they pick up old, old Tim, and this young man kind of put him under their wing, and their duo becomes a trio. They take Tim, they begin to travel in gospel ministry, and they, they get done confirming the churches, and they get to the very end, kind of the northwest corner of Turkey, or Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and it would make sense to them, the next logical step would be, we haven't planted churches in that region. It's kind of next up on the list. The domino would naturally fall there. So we're going to go there. And the Bible tells us that they, they purpose to go there, but the Spirit of God forbids them and tells them, no, do not go there in northwest Turkey. I have something different for you, and leads them to Troas. Troas is right on the, the western edge of Turkey, just right on the Aegean Sea. You can almost reach out and touch modern-day Greece from there. And he leads them to Troas, and that's where we pick up the story here in Troas in Acts chapter number 16. And I want you to pick it up in verse number 9. The Bible says this, a vision appeared to Paul in the night and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed to him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. Now, this is first century Macedonia. Uh, Macedonia at this point is much broader than, it, than there is a Macedonia right now that's a small landlocked country that, uh, that even the Gauls are, are there on a consistent basis ministering. So this is a broader spectrum. It's, it's really modern day Greece, but Paul gets this vision this premonition from the Lord that he wants him to go across the sea over into Europe and to plant a church and begin gospel ministry in Macedonia. And the Spirit of the Lord, you see all through this, the first nine verses of Acts 16, he's leading, he's guiding, he is directing the path of Paul and Silas and now Timothy, and he's trying to show them where to go or where not to go. And I would tell you that if you surrender to the Lord and you truly want him to guide in your life, and you want him to, to show you what's next or what's not next, if, if you will surrender to him, he will lead you. He, the Holy Spirit is doing his job here in the heart and life of Paul, and he's, he's leading him away from certain things and to certain things. And if you are sensitive to the Lord, wanting to have a relationship with him, he will do just that. He will lead you away from things that you need to get away from. He will lead you to things you need to go to. And even purposes or plans or designs for your life, opportunities even, the Lord will guide in that. I, I could look at my own life and look at my call to preach as a young man or the call really to go to, not just into ministry but to a specific ministry in, in Northern California where my wife and I were for, for five years and then him leading us to kind of step back and go deeper into schooling and seminary and, and sharpen the ax and then him leading us here and, and all that's developed here at, at Harvest. I can testify with, with Scripture this morning and tell you this, that if you will put God in the driver's seat, he'll drive. He will lead and he will guide and he will show you in demonstrable ways what to do or what not to do, what to stay away from, what to, what to go towards. And the Holy Spirit's doing that in Paul's life right here. And we get to verse number 10 and we, and we see this, this really unique uh, moment in the book of Acts. It says this, after he, Paul, had seen the vision, and immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia. Up until this point, the book of Acts says they, they, they. It's telling this, this story that these people did that, but now it changes. Luke is the author of this book, and now it changes to we. So we believe at this moment that some way, somehow, this trio became a quartet, that Paul and Silas and Timothy picked up the physician Luke, and now we 
they, that's this group of four, is endeavoring to launch from Troas to go over into Macedonia. Verse number 11. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came a straight course to Samothracia and the next day to Neapolis. So it's, it's a straightforward course. It's a two-day sail. You take a one day, you go a day, take a pit stop halfway at an island called Samothracia, go another day if the wind's at your back, and you get to Neapolis, and there now you're in Macedonia. You're just a, a stone's throw from Philippi. You're at this port city called Neapolis, verse number 12. And from thence, this port city, Neapolis, to Philippi which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. Now let me give you one more note of just historical perspective before we really get to apply this to, to ourselves this morning. Philippi is a different place than Paul has been previously. Philippi is not just in Europe and now officially in Macedonia, but Philippi is a chief city, which is typical for Paul. He, sought, he really think of Paul as a metropolitan church planner. That's what he did. So he's going to this city, but this is a Roman colony now in Europe. So this is different. Up until this point, Paul has planted churches in Asia Minor, and these cities are predominantly Greek, predominantly Jewish, and they have a minor Roman presence. They would have some, some legionnaires and a centurion, and they'd have some sort of outpost in the city. But he's not yet gone to a predominantly Roman city with a really small Greek and a really small Jewish presence. Paul, up until this point, his MO for establishing churches is, I'm going to go to the city, and I'm going to go to the Jew first, and then I'm going to go to the Gentile. I'm going to find the synagogue in the city. I'm going to go for a period of Sabbath days for a few weeks in a row. I'm going to go on the Sabbath, and I'm going to open up the Old Testament scriptures, and I'm going to try to show Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. I'm going to get a little core together, and then we're going to launch a church, and we're going to go reach the Gentile believers. So when Paul is going to Macedonia, this is a watershed moment for ministry for him. He, this city here, uh, archaeologists have found that the inscription on this kind of post that was outside the city, that it was forbidden to bring an outside religion into the city. There was no synagogue in Philippi. There is no big Jewish contingency in Philippi. So Paul is going to have to understand this moment. He has to play this by ear a little bit. He has to change his methodology a bit to try to reach these people. This is a Roman colony that is, this means the citizens of this place are Roman citizens. This is a game changer. This could get really hazy. I mean, on a, on a moment's notice, this could get bad for Paul because he's in a Roman colony filled with ex-legionnaires. So this colony would have been filled with ex-GIs. What Rome would do is they wanted a presence all through their kingdom, but they would st strategically set up cities that were, I mean, just deeply Roman. And what they would do to make this happen is they would give as a sort of pension to soldiers who were retiring, they would give them lots of lands in these colonies, thereby populating the colony with Roman citizens who were also ex-GIs. So this is, a different, this is a different ball game for Paul to get to this city, Philippi, in Macedonia and attempt to establish a church at this point. So we'll see what happens here. We'll see in verse number 13, this story begins to pick up. And what we find is this, all through this chapter, you're going to find this story, that person after person from all different walks of life, the gospel begins to impact and work just as it did with a Jewish person just as it did with a Greek person, just as it did with someone who was not a Roman citizen, that it doesn't matter. The gospel begins to impact anyone who will believe, and we first find that it impacts the cultured. Look in verse number uh, 13. We'll find this cultured woman named Lydia. On the Sabbath, 
we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. So this would make sense. They can't worship inside of the city. They have to go outside the city by a river in order to worship Jehovah and have some semblance of Judaism. So there, Paul and his band, they go on Saturday, on the Sabbath day. And the Bible says that he sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. What you find is that there's this woman who's with another band of women outside the city trying to worship the Lord and have a prayer meeting of sorts. Now, Paul and his three brothers here, Silas and Timothy and Luke, this is not Christian mingle, okay? This is not like there's some single ladies, we're some single dudes, let's go get together for church, you know, and just kind of mingle together. This is not what's happening here. They're not, they're not trying to find women, which sometimes, let's, let's be honest, sometimes that can happen in church. So that I've met many a person who had this philosophy of, well, I live my life contrary to Jesus, and maybe I don't even know Jesus, but I know I could find a good man or a good woman in church, so I'll go to church and I'll go hunting. Okay, so if, if perhaps that's you in the room, church is not a place to hunt. Go play in another sandbox. That This is not why we're here. I love you, and I'm glad you're here, and thankful that you've come to worship. I hope that you'll hear the gospel, that you'll sense love, but that's not what church is about. That's not what Paul's doing here. They come across this band of women who, and, and the Bible tells us there's one lady in particular named Lydia. Lydia's from Thyatira. That would be first century Asia, not how we would think of Asia, but she's Asian in ethnicity. Lydia is a seller of purple. Now, these descriptors tell us a lot about this woman. A seller of purple means that Lydia had income and means. Purple dye was extremely tough to come by. It was extremely hard to extract. And to have purple clothing, that was, that was the richest clothing. It was extremely costly. So that this woman would have the, the clothing of royalty and would be acquiring it, dyeing it, selling it. The, we'll learn in a couple verses that she has a house big enough for her, her household, and for four other men to come in the first century. This is pretty impressive. So this is obviously a woman of means. This woman has a business acumen. She's the CEO of Lydia Incorporated, and she's selling her purple. She's a fashionista. You know, Lydia is you know, selling and wearing Prada. This is kind of her business. This is what she's in. And the Bible tells us that she is worshiping God. She's, she's a God-fearer. She knows enough to know that she's rejected the pagan view of God, Lydia does not believe that there's a, a wind god and the earth god and the snow god. There was a snow god. I think we'd all pray to him that it wouldn't snow for the rest of the winter, but there's not. There's not a snow god. You know, there's a, a beard god to help you grow your beard. She rejects that. And she believes there's one god, and she's, she's seeking. She's wanting to try to find the truth, and she's here with these Jewish women worshiping the Lord. It, Lydia would have had enough biblical acumen probably at this point that the Torah would have been shared with her. She probably understands that there's a law of God and that she's fallen short of that. She probably has some concept of atonement, that there was a blood sacrifice that needed to be offered to atone for and to pay for my sins and give me right standing with God. But she is, she's an intellectual woman. She's probing, prodding, trying to find the truth with her wealth, with her business background, trying to find this. And the Bible tells us that Paul comes 
and begins to share the gospel with her. And the Bible tells us in, in the middle of verse 14, you can miss it if you're not careful, that the Lord begins to open her heart. And the Lord begins to incline her to believe and begins to pry open what's, what's there so that the gospel can penetrate and can change this woman. And the Bible doesn't give us all of the details here, but she obviously she believes, and then she's baptized, which naturally happens after belief. Baptized believe. It's kind of the, the next step. And she's baptized, and her house even believes. And then she constrains this group of men. She, she almost she forces them and says, come to my house. Let me take care of you. What Lydia is doing in this moment is she's saying to Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke that, that, that hey, I, wa- I want to do something. You've shared with me. The gospel has impacted me. The gospel has made a change in my life, and I want to be on the team now. I mean, Paul and Silas, you set out to do this, and and Timothy got on the team, and now you three were together for the gospel. And then you came across Luke, and Luke, you joined the team, and now you four were together for the gospel. You know, can we make this a, a basketball squad? You know, can I be number five? Put me on the team. I want to be together for the gospel with you. What can I do? What part can I play? How can I be a part of getting the gospel to the people. I want to share it with my family, but I want other people in Philippi to hear it. Let me do something. I don't have much. I don't know a ton, but I have a house I can put you in. I got some meals I can give you. I can take care of you. I can try to meet your needs. I, I can do something to contribute to the team and pull together for the gospel. And she says, I want to, I want to do this. And the gospel takes this, this educated businesswoman seeking the Lord and changes her. And moves in and creates something dynamic in her heart that's powerful. But in the next verse, we see a, a drastic contrast. And you find not this, this cultured businesswoman who's seeking the Lord and going to Bible study. You find this little poor slave girl who is oppressed and possessed and needs the Lord just as much as Lydia does, but is a completely altogether different stage of life and strata of society And I want you to see that the gospel doesn't just impact the cultured, but it begins to impact the captive. Look at verse number 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her master much gain by Sue's saying. What's that saying? That's saying there was a little girl who was demon-possessed, and she had the ability to, to tell the future, to be a fortune teller. And people were using her to profit off of this. You say, Pastor Mark, I don't know that I've, you know, I don't know I believe in all that sort of stuff. You know, tarot cards and talking to the dead and reading palms and telling futures. I don't know that I do. Are there people that are fraudulent and are trying to, you know, Sherlock Holmes you and put together enough about your life to tell you something to make some money? Yeah, certainly there are. But are there people that have a supernatural ability, not from the Lord, but from someone else to to do things that that are outlandish? Yes. And stay away from that. This is not the, the point of Acts 16, but when it comes to Ouija boards and seances and, and, and tarot cards and palm readings and necromancy and speaking to the dead, those sorts of things, stay, stay away from that. You don't want any part of that. You don't, you don't, want, to get, you don't want to get messed up with that. Stay away from even what can come uh, in movies. I'm, I'm amazed at, at uh, movies that are out. Now, I don't know how many paranormal activities there are. I think there's like 13 of them by now. But basically movies depicting Demon possession and things that are happening. Don't watch that stuff. Don't, don't watch horror movies that are designed to just be blood and gore and satanic in nature. You say, I like to be scared. Well, jump in the tiger pit at the zoo if you want to be scared, okay? 
Obviously, that's dumb, right? Tiger Pit, dumb. Watching the horror satanic movie, dumb. It is. Um, if you want to be scared, you could play Russian roulette. But inevitably, a dangerous outcome will befall you. And the same thing will happen. If you mess with that satanic stuff, it will not. I could tell you stories for days. I won't this morning because it's not the point. But stay away from it. So here's this little girl possessed by a devil who can tell the future. And, are, and men are profiting off of her as, as a little slave girl. And the Bible tells us in verse 17 that this girl followed Paul and us and cried saying, she didn't say it this way, these men are servants of the most high God which show unto us the way of salvation. I don't know if she said it in a freaky little demon voice. I don't know if she was just annoying. But we do know, we know, you know this much. It wasn't good because verse 18 tells us, and this she did many days and Paul being grieved or peeved or really annoyed at this little girl turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her master saw that the hope of their gain was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace and to the rulers and brought them to the magistrate saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach such customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. Paul meets this little girl and after a few days of her following them around and in some annoying, pestering, not like, yay, team Paul, he knows the way of salvation, but in a way that was detrimental and disruptive to his ministry, trying to scream at everybody, finally is grieved and says, spirit, get out of her. Now, I at least look at that and say, why don't you do that on day one, Paul? I don't know the exact answer to that. Likely, he knew it was going to unfold when he did this, what the masters and magistrates would do, and he's trying to avoid it. Likely. I don't know for sure. But regardless, he, in an act of Holy Spirit power, looks at this girl who's a complete contrast to Lydia. I mean, what, I mean you couldn't get more polar opposite than Lydia, than this little girl. And he doesn't invite her to a Bible study. He doesn't say, hey, let's, let's pray together and let, let me just open up the scriptures and show you something. But in an act of Holy Spirit power, says come out of her and this girl in a moment is saved and is impacted and is brought to a saving knowledge of the gospel in a moment. And this girl who had set up this thing inside of her as, as her glory, as something that would provide for her, as something that she valued, now realizes in an instant that I don't need to value that, that that, that thing is not all-powerful, that thing is not deserving of my glory, that thing doesn't need to provide for me. Now something's happened in my life and things have changed and the gospel impacts this little girl. And what happens? Her owners get angry. They get ticked, not because Paul hurt the girl, because Paul hurt their bottom line. Paul's taking away their proceeds. She doesn't have the gift anymore because she doesn't have the demon anymore. And she can't help them make money now. And these men who are motivated by their economic station rather than the well-being of someone else, rather than someone coming to a place of knowledge in Jesus Christ, they don't care about that. They care about their greed. They have this source of idolatry that they set up money in their hearts, and they decide that they're going, they're going to make Paul and Silas and his team pay. They're going to drag them to the magistrates, and they're going to, what they're going to do is they're going to play the race card. Look at verse number 20. You, you may have missed this. They brought them to the magistrate saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. So these Jewish guys are pouring out their propaganda that's pro-Jesus, 
which the Romans didn't like because Jesus said, there's only one king, that's Jesus. You worship me, you don't worship Caesar. So this caused a lot of conflict in the first century. And these Roman guys say, we're Romans, they're Jews. They don't know at this point that Paul's a Roman citizen. That's going to come back to, to haunt them. But they say, we're, they're Jews, we need to do something about this. And they attempt to stamp out and stop the gospel message. But little do they know that they're just going to add fuel to the fire and something powerful and beautiful and supernatural is about to happen because the gospel is about to impact a man who I would call calloused. Look at verse number 22. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them and cast them into prison, charging that the jailers should keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in stock. So these men are commanded, beat them, and now let's put them in prison, and we want to teach them a lesson. And th this, was, this was something that was brutal, it was gory. Oftentimes men would beg for their life after a beating like this. And the Bible puts a lot of emphasis on this, this jailer, probably an ex-GI, someone who had served in, in the Roman army previously, now this jailer, and the Bible says clearly that they were commanded to keep them safely. Now maybe that means that don't let them escape. That's really, that's a given in a jailer. You weren't supposed to let them escape. What this is putting an emphasis on is that he was commanded to keep them safely, and then it says, and given such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and put them in stocks. The Bible, not, I can't guarantee this, but is, is leaning towards this man was commanded not to hurt them, but he decided you know what, I don't like these guys, maybe. Maybe it's just he was used to his pound of flesh and he got some sort of weird pleasure out of hurting people. And he decides, I'm going to put them in maximum security and I'm going to put them in stocks. Not 17th century stocks. Stocks would be, we're going to twist your body in such a way and we're going to cause your muscles to be tight and then we're going to lock your body in that place. And after a few minutes, those muscles are going to start to cramp up and your, and your whole body is going to be in excruci excruciating pain. And for a period of sometimes days, we're going to leave you there bound in that position, crippling your body. And this man who receives this charge to keep them safely decides to torture them. He says, I'm going to put you in maximum security. So get the picture of this guy. Ex-military, calloused man, does not care about pain or inflicting them with pain, has no interest in the gospel. This man is not seeking as, as Lydia did. He's not interested in, in religious, you know, fanfare and, and what does that have to say. I don't care. This guy's probably not sitting home at night thinking about what happens after he dies and, and reading philosophy books. This man's not interested in all the hoopla of, uh, of the spirit and the power that maybe is, is there with this little slave girl. This is a guy who I'm going to do my job I'm going to go home, have a beer, and watch the Gladiator rerun and watch Maximus, you know, fight the tiger. This is, this is what I'm going to do with my life. This is a guy who's duty-bound. We'll read, keep reading in this story, and you'll, and you'll find how duty-bound he is. Verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas, who are now in the maximum security in stocks, they prayed, and they sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were, in the, were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword 
And he would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm for we are all here. Here's a man who knows his duty. Keep the captives. And according to Roman custom, if one of your captives escaped, your life could be and should be demanded of you. Now, there are plenty of stories throughout Roman history of people who lost a prisoner due to extenuating circumstances, and they didn't die. Maybe they were given a break because, like, how could you control an earthquake? That's not your fault, buddy. Maybe they ran for their life. This man is choosing to do neither. He's not going to beg for mercy and put his pride on the line. He's not going to run out of shame. This man, earthquake happens, he thinks the prisoners are gone, pulls out his sword, and is going to kill himself. So this is a guy who's as Roman as Roman can get, who's, who's as entrenched in, in his macho identity as you can possibly get, who's about to kill himself, and Paul and Silas cry out and say, don't do it. We're still here. And the Bible continues and says this, verse 30. He brought them out and said, uh, 29, he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and who was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. This calloused man, not, they don't have a Bible study. They don't, there's not necessarily Holy Spirit power that just moves into this guy's life. This man sees a demonstration of Christian living that obliterates him. He takes these men undeserving of torture and he tortures them and he listens to them sing and praise Jesus. And then they have the opportunity to escape, Paul being a Roman citizen, knowing that maybe this guy would die if he escapes. And they stay put. And they say, we don't want you to hurt yourself. We're on your team. You've hurt us. You've maligned us. You have done, you've had ill will towards us, but we are on your team. Don't hurt yourself. And it blows this man up. He takes them out in trembling and says, I want what you got. What, what do I need to do to be saved? What is it that you have? How can I get what has possessed you. I don't know what it is, and I'm not sure what can make you sing when you're being tortured and what would make you stay put when, when, when I am hurting you and you could do me harm, but you do. I want what you have. And I don't know how long it took for them to tell them the gospel or if this man had already heard the gospel, but they look at him and they say, it's simple. It's Jesus. Jesus died for your sins, and Jesus wants to change you. All that... Yes, we look at a beautiful world and we know that the world itself is broken. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out, but we look inside of our own hearts and we know that something is broken and something is off. And, and Jesus can come in and the gospel can change that and you can find forgiveness and right standing with God and you can find grace and mercy and you can have a home in heaven and you can be saved. And this man, he believes. And then he takes them and he washes them and come to my house and tell my family about this. I want them to believe and we want to be baptized. And they go through this, this process. And what you find in the gospel-centered beginnings of Philippi is that every strata of society in a matter of probably a couple weeks here in Philippi 
is impacted with the gospel. Cultured CEO, fashionista women, bound poor little enslaved girls who, who are trapped, a man who's callous and has no interest in God or hearing what they have to say, that all of them come together and this church is formed with these people that would have never been in, in each other's orbits and would have never chosen to socialize outside of the gospel, but they choose to come together under the umbrella of Jesus Christ and they choose to worship together and band together and say, well, you know what? We're going to form a little church in Lydia's house and we're going we're gonna to begin to propagate and spread the gospel and tell other people about this. We're going to do our best to get the message to people. And you find in the beginnings of this church at Philippi that Paul writes to that the gospel has defied race, gender, socioeconomic backgrounds, family backgrounds, walks of life, history. It's defied all of that. And it's taken people and it's brought them together into a local church to say, you know what? Let's tear down all those walls. Let's get rid of these things that would naturally in our human constructs divide us and separate us and, and say, well, you're different than me and I wouldn't socialize with you and, and we, you know, I, I normally wouldn't get along with you. But, but to take all that and bring them together in unity to fellowship with Paul in the gospel, in the gospel. and you have to understand, when Paul is writing Philippians 1 and he's gushing, and here there's love, and there's affection, and there's, there's bowels, there's, there's affection in Jesus Christ. When he does this, he's not just writing to some people we don't know anything about. He's writing to Lydia. And he's writing to this little slave girl who's, who's grown up and matured in Jesus a bit now. And he's, he's writing to this jailer and to this jailer's family saying, you, you are the people that cared for me and fellowshiped with me and walked with me and were with me from the beginning. And the good news of Jesus Christ is affecting every level of society just as it should and just as it does today. There should be and are people in this room that have criminal backgrounds that you don't want to talk about and people that if you got a speeding ticket this week, you would weep because you've never been in trouble with the law one iota. There are people in this room that would want to search and mine the deep things of Scripture and just open up your Bible and study it and go deep. There's other people in this room that would say, you know what, I don't know about all the intricacies of the Bible. I'm, I'm not into all that cerebral stuff. All I know is Jesus changed me and he should change you too. I just want to tell you that. There are people in this room whose idea of a good time is going to the deer camp for three days with one change of clothes that's covered in deer urine with six cans of beans and some beef jerky and just sitting there for three days on end. And there's another group in this room that you want to go to the symphony at Heinz Hall this week and go home and read philosophy and poetry at night. How is it that people from all walks of life who are, who are so vast and different in, in race and gender and background and what makes us tick and what we enjoy and, and, and those who have a, a background that's completely contrary to the gospel and didn't know Jesus at all and those who were born into the church nursery by their mother, I mean like day one, we're just in church, that all these people unite in one place. I tell you what made it happen at Philippi and I tell you what has made that happen here at Harvest is the gospel. It takes people and it brings them together. And you say, you know what? You love Jesus? I love Jesus. You want to tell people about Jesus? I want to tell people about Jesus. You want to spread the good news? Me too. Let's do this. Let's go together in the gospel. And this is what Paul is commending Philippi for. And this is why he loves them so much is because they put it all to the side and they banded together and said, let's, let's be on a team. Let's give the message 
to people. Let's, what we talked about last week, let's take the, the message to the lost and let's bring the lost to the message. Let's do it both. And it breaks all of that down. And when we, when we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about a, a social program that could potentially benefit some demographic of our society. We're not talking about some charitable cause that feels philanthropic and will have a good story when it's all said and done. We're not talking about some self-help program that could potentially make people feel better about themselves. You're talking about Jesus Christ coming into someone's life and changing them and helping them to understand that you can have peace with God, that you can know him, that his wrath has been appeased and his love has been demonstrated in the cross and you can believe on that he died for you and he was buried and he rose again. And if, and if you're in the room and you've never believed the gospel, let me tell you today, if you, if you, if you relate with Lydia and you find yourself a thinker and a prober and, and you're seeking Christianity, if you relate with the slave girl and say, I'm bound and I just I feel like I can't get out of my habits and I'm in this, just this habit loop that's just over and over that I wish I could break free of, maybe you're, you're a jailer and you're callous and you say, I don't even know why in the world I'm here this morning, but something inside of me brought me here, and here I am. Whatever you relate with, if you've never believed the gospel, you can. Jesus would love to save you, just as he did these stories here in Acts 16. And it teaches us a truth that is so, to me, potent. That the gospel can impact anyone. And if we're not careful, what we'll begin to think and to tell ourselves, we may not say it out loud, but we'll tell ourselves, well, the gospel is only for that group of people. The gospel, I, I can see how, how the message of Jesus, the good news is for them, but I don't know about that person. You don't, you don't know how callous they are and how hard they are towards, the, towards Jesus. You don't know what they're into. You don't know how contrary to Jesus they live. You don't know how antagonistic they are to me when I try to pray or talk about Jesus at work. You don't know how much they hate Christians. You don't know how cerebral they are. I mean, they'll, they'll never, they just think Christianity is a crotch for these people that are walking around in religion and they're too smart for all that. The gospel can impact anyone. And whoever it is on your prayer list, whoever it is that's in your life right now, that you are thinking, man, I would love for them to be saved, it can impact them. The gospel can reach them. That person that you go get, you go to the coffee shop and you see them five days a week, every, every morning you get the same coffee from the same person, you've gotten to know them, it can impact them. The person that you work with, that you have lunch with, that you talk about everything other than Jesus, it can impact them. The family member that you think, I've tried a million times, and they're just never going to come to know Jesus. It can anyone. So don't think for a moment that the gospel lacks power. It's the power of God and the salvation, Romans 1 tells us. The word of God itself, I would certainly say including the gospel because that's what the word of God's all about. It's alive. It's powerful. It divides our thoughts. It has a way just to penetrate into somebody. It's not our job to convince them of the truth, but it is our job to, to sow the seed, to spread. And you find in this city that Paul is doing that and people, they come to know him. And forever, Philippi is, is forever a testimony that no matter who a person is, the gospel has power to reach them. I won't for sake of time read the last seven verses. I encourage you to read them on your own because they're comical. The people realize that Paul's a Roman citizen and they think, Oh, snaps. We should not have tortured him. <laughs> that you could do that to someone who wasn't a Roman citizen when you were a Roman citizen, but if someone's actually a citizen, they don't get to get beat for no reason. 
And they don't get a trial without, without a fair hearing. And they realize this. Paul has kind of had this ace up his sleeve for a little while. And they come to him and they say, Paul, sir, um, would you like show us mercy and forgive us? And we'd just appreciate it if you would leave. And we would just, eh, it's just part ways now. And just let bygones be, God, be bygones and act like this never happened, buddy. And Paul looks at him and says, don't think so. Philippi is open for gospel business now, people. I'm going to go over to Lydia's house, and we're, we're going to eat some pierogies and some chipped ham, and we're going to drink some Turner's tea. We're going to watch a Penn's game, and we're going to, we're going to have a Bible study. We're going to pray all day long, and then we're going to go tell everybody about Jesus, and you ain't going to do nothing about it. And they say, okay. <laughs> In Philippi, something starts to happen at Philippi. We don't, we don't get much more than this, but we know that the gospel begins to be spread. And people come and start to abandon this church. And, and I, I say all of this and lay all this foundation this week for this reason, because as you read this, this book of Philippians, you've got to know who he's talking about. These are the people. This is the story. And now years later, as he writes to them, he says, I love you so much. And I love you because you fellowshiped with me in the gospel. You were striving together in the faith of the gospel. You were doing this with me. You have, you have been, and you are right now, and I love this. Let's keep going. And if there was ever a book that I feel right now for our church is fitting, it's this. I don't feel like there's doctrinal error that I need to stand up and correct this morning, that we need to, that we need to go into this intricacy or this or that, but just a book of, hey, let's continue to love and fellowship and pull together and share the gospel with people because there's a world that needs it and it has power.